0: Hello, and welcome to Cultural Conversations with the International Hub. We are committed to helping you navigate global business. Throughout this series, we will have conversations with global business professionals and experts.
1: Hey, everyone. You are here with Amanda Bonney, Sarah Capisi, and Dylan Pappenfuss. Today, we are going to talk to Eric Johnstone, who is an Assurance Manager at EY in Brisbane. He also has experience working in London and San Francisco, so we are excited to hear what he has learned from his cultural experiences. Let's try calling him.
2: Hello, this is Eric.
1: Yay, hi Eric, it's us again. Hi. Can you start by telling us about your career background?
2: Originally, I was planning to go to law school. So I took a year off after graduating from BYU and worked in preparation to go to law school. But what I realized during that year was that I was really enjoying the accounting work that I was doing and I thought, well, I've already got this skill set and I've invested so much in an accounting degree. Maybe I should reconsider law school and continue on with accounting. So um, that drove me back into academia, and I went to the University of Utah to get my master's degree in accounting and had a good experience there. Unfortunately, when I went through my master's program, which is designed to be a springboard into the recruiting process, it was at the height of the economic recession, and firms were being extremely selective in their recruiting process. And I was a, I was a very good student, but I wasn't a 4.0 student, and at the U— you really had to have basically perfect grades to be getting interviews with the Big Four. So I wasn't successful going through recruiting with Big Four at that time. Which, upon reflection now, many years later, it's, it's a bit it's a bit silly to think about. But um, my thought at the time was, well, I'll just go get the best job I can find in accounting. I'll get my CPA license as quickly as I can, and then I'll basically harass. The recruiters until <laughs> someone gives me a job. <laughs> and uh, and that worked. So I went and worked in a, for a small insurance company in, in Midvale in their accounting and finance team. I got my CPA license very quickly. And I just stayed very close to the big four recruiters. And sure enough, an opportunity opened up in the EY San Jose office, which is a really large and active office for, for EY. And so I had no sort of pre thoughts about moving to the Bay Area and working in Silicon Valley, but boy, was that, that really ended up being a very good decision. So I I joined EY in 2012 in their San Jose office and um, have have, had the privilege of being able to move around the world with EY since I spent three years in their Bay Area practice and in external audit, working primarily on tech clients, which and um, as you can imagine, is, is a big population of the client work in the Bay Area, um, but also doing um, some really interesting kind of pre-IPO and IPO imminent work, going through the IPO process, big debt transactions, um, getting a, a really nice variety of experiences. But I, I always knew I wanted to work and live abroad at some point. And the big four are really great about facilitating that if that's something that interests you. So... In 2015, I applied to one of EY's um, global mobility programs called the Global Exchange Program and was accepted. And EY moved me to London. Um, So I lived in London working with EY from 2015 to September of last year, working again primarily on technology clients, but actually doing a bit more in the media and entertainment space. I worked on the BBC. Um, and some other sort of entertainment industry clients, which is a really good experience. Um, And then late last year, um, I relocated again with EY to the EY Brisbane Australia office, which is um, where I'm based currently.
1: Okay, cool. Um, So you've worked both in the UK and Australia. Did you do any sort of preparation before going to those countries and being immersed in their different cultures?
2: Yeah, so I, the answer is yes. So I, um, I did not do a lot of international travel prior to making the move to London. I had done some in Europe, but I had never been to the UK, so I was going sight unseen. And one of the things that UI does that's really great is um, they bring all of their people together who are moving abroad, and they do basically a, a week-long crash course in cultural and country-specific preparation. So in July of 15, prior to moving to the U.K. in September of that year, I got to go to our New York office and basically spend a week in preparation for that move. And they brought sort of cultural experts and British people, and we basically got U.K. 101. And that was really, really helpful, I think. I mean, I think you can manage without it. Many, many people move abroad without that. But it was extremely helpful having someone come in and basically giving you tips and tricks on where to live, how to navigate the transportation system, um, tips for dealing with communication differences, things of that nature. Um, I didn't have the same thing coming here to Australia, but frankly, I didn't need it. I have been to Australia a few times. Um, And so I I think I I was prepared adequately to hit the ground running here.
1: Okay, that's awesome. Uh, did you experience culture shock at all?
2: Yeah, that's an interesting. That's an interesting phrase. I wouldn't call it culture shock, but it is very evident when you move to an international country. The differences between your and their experience, your and their communication style, and it's it's, it's it can be very little things. Like, for I'll just give you a very sort of practical example. In the UK and Australia, their extremely regulated above and beyond the US, for example, in your ability to buy over-the-counter medication. Just think, like your standard ibuprofen, you can go to Costco in the US and basically buy a, a large jug of ibuprofen. And in the UK, for example, you can only buy ibuprofen up to quantities of 16 tablets at a time. And so there's this element when you move to a new country of having to sort of reframe the way you go about your day-to-day life, whether it's, you know, what, how do I buy drug, how do I buy over the counter drugs to manage, you know, a headache or things like that. For example, in the UK, um, the old adage that people tell you when you go there is, you know, if someone tells you in a business meeting, Oh, yeah, that's a great idea, let's think about that and come back to that. What they're really telling you is that's a terrible idea and never bring it up again. <laughs> um, and so I found in the U.S., our, our communication approach tends to be very direct and very transparent compared to the U.K., where um, oftentimes you have to read between the lines a little bit. And what what is actually being said differs from the meaning of what is being said. And it takes time getting used to that. So I I won't say I ever experienced shock. I think I've acclimated really well to both countries, but there are definitely there's I'll call it a learning curve more than anything when you move to a new place and just getting used to all of those differences.
3: So was there ever I mean, could you describe a time when there was a miscommunication between you and someone in the culture that you were in because of your differing styles of communication?
2: Yeah, definitely. So um, very early on in the UK, I worked with, it's still the most diverse team I've ever worked with in my life. So there were nine of us on this engagement team in, in London, and there was an American, someone from Poland, Australia, South Africa, India, Romania, and then I think two people from the UK, so um, that's one of the beautiful things about living in a place like London, is, it's very British, but it's very, very international. Um, so on that team, I was working very, very closely with um, someone who reported directly to me who was from India, and prior to this, I had not had a lot of experience working with, with people from India. Um, but I found over the first three weeks, it was very obvious to me that we we were just not on the same page about a lot of things. Um, I would give instructions, and then the fulfillment of those instructions were sort of nowhere
0: near where my expectations were. So it was very clear to me something was
2: not was not clicking here. And and um, it took a while, but basically, and um, what I learned in working with this person is. There is there is sort of an um, a communication or a cultural um, theme that you will oftentimes see with people from um, um, Southeast Asia or, or even India where they there is a very high regard for agreeability and respect and sort of um an acknowledgement of hierarchy. So what what the long the short of it is, and when we would have discussions about what the task was, he would he would acknowledge to me that he understood and and very, very confidently say, Yep, I'll go away and do that. And then I check in with him throughout the duration of the task and he'd acknowledge that it was being done and everything was okay. So I I was thinking it was everything was okay. Well, the reality was he did not understand what the task was, the nature of what he needed to do. And as I was checking in with him throughout, um, he still didn't understand and was not progressing in the way, but um, partly because of his cultural background, he felt like he needed to say yes to me even though the answer was no um so that was a that was a tricky situation and and, and it was super invaluable learning that about himself because i can flex to that style and i can do things differently if i know that that's what that person was was sort of thinking and doing
0: but i had no appreciation for that prior to working with him mm-hmm. so when you realized uh and then kind of conversations after that how would you go about communicating with them so that you guys were on the same page? Yeah, that's
2: a great question. So for me, the, it's the difference between telling him to do something and having him re- basically tell me what he believes the instructions are. So um, obviously a certain amount of that requires me to, to dictate to someone what I what my expectations are, then making sure that in every conversation thereafter, that one, he knew he, he knew that he should not tell me yes if the answer was no. So part of it is his, him flexing to my style, but then also giving him the opportunity to repeat back to me in his own words, his understanding of what was expected, and then we can flush out any sort of areas of inconsistent expectations that way. Um, so yeah, it's just basically opening the door for him to be able to repeat that back to me.
3: When you first presented an idea or an assignment, did the people you were working with want to first understand what the outcome would be or why they should do something? Does that, does that make sense?
2: It does, and I actually think the answer to that is less about cultural styles and more about personality styles. So um, if, you, if you go work for the big four, potentially other companies, you'll actually do a bit of training around understanding people's sort of uh, communication and work styles. And naturally, there are people who want to take more time up front, who are generally more analytical, who like to understand sort of every possible outcome ahead of time, things like that or you'll have someone who's more of a driving personality who wants to understand the basics, but then jump in and figure things out on the fly. I didn't find that any, either the UK or here or any of the cultures I've worked with in either of those places had a strong tendency towards any particular style, a more analytical approach or a more driving approach, for example. So I, I think that's actually more down to the individual person versus a specific country or culture.
3: That's really good to know. Thank you. So how is negative feedback given, I guess, in the cultures that you worked in? Mm-hmm. And was it similar to the way that you were used yeah. to getting feedback?
2: Not at all. Not mm-hmm. at all. Uh, so this this was a, a really big learning point for me. So. EY, in general, has a very a very open and transparent approach to giving and receiving feedback. It's one of the things I love most about EY. Um, and you learn very quickly on um, with the company that you need to have thick skin. You can't take offense when someone comes to you and says, you did that wrong. Here's what you need to do differently. You learn that it's not a criticism or a judgment about who you are. It's purely an observation about a behavior that needs to change so that you can be better. Um, And I think especially in the U.S., and maybe even especially in the Bay Area, which is such a dynamic kind of working environment, there is just a a super high level of openness. I mean, you do it with your clients. You do it on your teams. You just, the feedback process is, is seemingly constant. And and what you see is what you get. When someone so no one's going to beat around the bush. They're going to tell you if something is good, and they're going to tell you if something is not good. Um, I can't think of a more opposite experience than working in the UK. And I sort of alluded this alluded to this a little bit earlier, but it, it again it what they're saying oftentimes may be you know miles and miles away from what they mean. So. Um, I can recall some early feedback conversations in in the UK, where what I was being told was all positive. It was, you know, we appreciated you doing bringing this to this meeting. Um, this was a good idea. Um, we like this, and then all of that has to then get documented in our system for tracking performance management. Um, and then when when it did. There was a massive disparity in what I understood from my meeting and what was documented in the system and there were clearly areas I needed to address and improve. Um, but I just remember feeling shocked because my, my feeling coming away from those conversations was so different. Um, but again, it was sort of a, a, an early introduction to um, kind of learning how to interpret the way British people, um, approach those conversations there's there's very sort of high regard for cultural and social institutions and you know being um, um, adhering to so- social rules and being proper and the idea of of giving feedback as openly as I was accustomed to receiving it in the states would be considered very uncouth in the UK and so, um, that made it tricky sometimes to kind of know where you stood and, and know what someone was actually thinking. How
0: would that uh, tendency towards giving feedback, how would that impact the uh, manager-managee dynamic? Oh, I
2: think, I think it has the potential, if, if, if done well, to really create a lot of trust and confidence I think the thing that, that can damage that manager-managee relationship the most is when the managee feels like they can't trust the manager. And more often than not, I've seen that trust broken when the managee goes along thinking one thing and then is surprised to hear that the manager thinks another thing that's inconsistent with their expectations. So having a very sort of open frequent and honest dialogue between a manager and managee, I think, creates a lot of trust and creates lots of opportunities for the manager to show that they actually care about the development of the managee. So I think when done correctly, it is a really fantastic model for driving high performance. When managed incorrectly or not done, um, then I think it, it could be of the single biggest contributor to distrust within that relationship.
0: Just staying on the topic of the manager-managee dynamic, how is uh, is it similar and different between the United States, uh, the UK, and Australia?
2: Yeah, so in my experience, the United States has a, a much flatter hierarchy meaning the while you do have differences in rank between your associates your managers your managers your senior managers senior managers and partners the approachability of each of everyone within those levels seems to be very lateral meaning uh, new people can quite easily go up to partners and feel like they have uh, access to them and very senior people in the firm and and in the uk there's a much bigger hierarchy so it would be very uncommon for a new staff or even someone within their first three or four years to have a lifeline to directly to a partner. It just doesn't happen. The part first of all, the, the partners tend to be a bit more hands off. They're not necessarily on site quite as much, and when they do come out, they're typically interacting directly with the senior managers, maybe the managers. Um, and, and that and that is, that is absolutely cultural. There is. And if you think about sort of the the British royal system, um, the way ladies and lords and people of status are elevated in society, and and that's less true today, but it still exists, there's there's a cultural sort of dynamic built around the idea of classes and hierarchy that's more ingrained in British culture than it is in U.S. culture. Um, I would say that, so Australia in that sense is much more like the U.S. Australia is like the naughty sort of stepkid of the UK that kind of got sent away a couple hundred years ago and was able to do, even though they are technically part of the Commonwealth, they kind of got to build their own little cultural dynamic on their own. And it tends to be a more casual, um, informal and, and sort of transparent cultural dynamic like the US. And my experience here has been a lot of just very friendly, accessible, um ability to kind of access any any level of management which which has been very pleasant as well
1: how would you say that decisions are made in each of the countries that you've worked in
2: yeah in in this way i would probably say the u.s and australia are are quite similar in that it's it's extremely collaborative um you do tend to have decisions made by people higher up but i think everyone feels like they have a voice In the UK, again, partly because of the hierarchical nature of of society and and of the business community, it tends to feel more autocratic, like you don't necessarily have as strong of a voice or a voice in the decision-making process. Um, And I can definitely see that for younger people to do professionally. They might very literally not have a voice in in the decision-making process. But it does tend to be sort of partners and senior people kind of making decisions on behalf of the greater sort of population of employees without it doesn't, there's surely there is consultation, it oftentimes doesn't feel like there's as much consultation or
0: collaboration. Kind of shifting gears here, how is work life balance uh, different in the, in the three different countries that you've worked in?
2: Well, I would say between the Bay Area, which is a very dynamic working environment, and London, not at all. I mean, both you work really hard and tend to work really long hours in both places, um, but you can't really categorize the U.S. as sort of one, one place, because you would work tons in the Bay Area, but in sort of our Dallas, Texas office, maybe you don't work as much, or Phoenix, maybe you don't work as much. Um, and even within those offices, your workload can, can can vary drastically depending on the clients you work on, your teams and things. I would say generally the perception of Americans abroad is that we work really hard. And generally speaking, Europeans, including British people, um, don't work quite as long hours. But in London, that is not the case. I thought that was the case and I was surprised to see that I was working just as much in London. So London, they work a lot of hours. Australia, um, I would say it's slightly more like America. Um, are actually, so Australia is a bit different too. For example, in Sydney, you would work tons of hours. So Sydney is like a London, like a San Francisco, like a New York. People grind there. Um, but in places like Brisbane, where I'm at, they don't work as much. It's a, it's a more casual and work-life balance focused region of Australia. So, there's, there's a bit of variability there too. But I do think in general, people perceive sort of Americans to, be, to work a lot. And factually, Americans don't get as much paid time off as Europeans and other countries do. We don't observe as many holidays, things like that. So, I think that all sort of serves to drive that perception.
3: Did you notice any difference in mannerisms between the different cultures that you were in? For example, yeah. handshakes, seating arrangements, body language, and did you ever ha- have any misunderstandings because of this?
2: Yeah, it's, um, I actually work here in Brisbane. I have a client based out of Sydney, and um, it, it, the parent company is Japanese, and all of the people who work here in the, in the Australian office are Japanese. And absolutely, and you find it more so with um, Asian cultures, where, yes, there are definitely um, acceptable and unacceptable things you do with your hands, um, in terms of shaking hands, exchanging business cards. For example, when you exchange a business card with someone from Japan, um, if they're handing you a business card, you would always receive the business card with both hands and looking them in the eye. And it would be considered disrespectful to just casually take the business card with one hand or without sort of mutual eye contact. Um, Also with with Japanese customs, if if you're ever out to a meal with with a Japanese team or something like that, um, generally the person who ranks highest would sit in the middle of the table. I was fortunate to have have a, a partner who I was working with who was very aware of all these things and he sort of gave me upfront training, so I didn't have any missteps in that regard. But yes, it, you tend to find it, especially with sort of Far Eastern cultures, um, that there's a, a lot of things to be conscious about in terms of um, gestures, mannerisms, um, acknowledging hierarchy and where you sit when you sit, that type of thing.
1: How do people that you work with deal with ambiguity? Um, like were they uncomfortable not knowing the outcome of a situation, or were they fine?
2: Again, I think this it, this sort of speaks more to to different personality types. I have always been the type of person I I sort of I am very comfortable with with the ambiguity. i don't I don't need to know all the answers or all the outcomes ahead of time. but but there are people who tend to be a bit more analytical. Um, a, a bit more control focused, who really, really don't like the, any uncertainty or ambiguity. Um, I can't think of a, a specific example off the top of my head, but I would say that is definitely more of a, a personality type than it is driven by sort of cultural specifics. Okay, that's
1: good. Another question dealing with their behaviors. Uh, when they sit down in a meeting, like, say it's your first meeting with a client, Um, Is there focus more on getting to know you or on getting the job
2: done? Yeah, so that that, that question definitely speaks more to cultural differences and and just comparing, for example, Japanese culture to Australian or American culture, um, they couldn't be more different. So you would never, never approach a first meeting with a Japanese in a Japanese business environment, expecting to have sort of an answer or an outcome. They value sort of trust and knowing who you are and seeing that you understand their culture and and can sort of accommodate a lot of those things that I mentioned before in terms of um, gestures and things like that. They, and they take their time, Um, painfully so sometimes, they'll take their time to make important decisions, whereas I find that cultures that we would categorize more as Western culture, so Americans, Aussies, maybe even to an extent British people, we we like to sort of understand the task at hand and then move as quickly as possible forward to an outcome. So those would be sort of two ends of the continuum in that regard. Yeah,
1: I think that definitely um, confirms like some of the research that we've studied from other people. Mm.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, would you describe any of the cultures you worked with as confrontational?
2: Uh, yes, I would. So again, there's sort of a continuum, I think about a continuum with, with all of these questions. And on one end of the confrontational continuum, I would put Eastern Europeans slash Russian. So they have, they have a communication style that to people who are unfamiliar it is it is shocking, to be honest, because it is so direct. It is so abrupt and void of any sort of softening or nuance um, that the first time you have one of those conversations, it can be a bit sort of jarring. Um, I would categorize that as, as probably the most confrontational. The least confrontational, I would put as sort of uh, Eastern Asian countries, they do not like um, and would consider it very inappropriate to have confrontational type discussions, um, and they they really try to avoid it at all costs. Which can be uh, which can be hard sometimes when you're in a position, for example, as an auditor trying to work through a complex conclusion where your position might be different than theirs. Uh, they do not like that type of con- uh, confrontation, so I put them at the other end of the continuum. And then I would put I would put Americans somewhere in the middle, but closer to Eastern European and and again, in that you know we sort of speak our mind, and we're not necessarily afraid to say if something displeases us. And then I would put British people sort of on um, uh, in the middle again, but closer to the Eastern Asian side of the continuum where, again, there's a lot of regard for politeness and manners and things you do and don't say in certain situations, so they would be less confrontational.
1: Would you consider the other cultures usually, like, on time with deadlines or meetings?
2: Yeah, yeah. So generally speaking, um, Americans, Western culture, so Australian, British culture, they adhere. When you say a meeting is at 9, the meeting starts at 9, there's probably a little flexibility if you're running a few minutes late, but I think the three of those cultures would consider it pretty rude if you're turning up 10 minutes late to a meeting. Um, I'd say that's probably true for Japan as well. Where I've not seen that to be true, um, I, I worked on some engagements when I was in the Bay Area with clients in Hawaii. And I'm, I'm aware of some engagements here we do in Australia, in Papua New Guinea, in some Micronesian countries, and their, their timing seems to be completely flexible, meaning you schedule a meeting and you really just have to, have to accept that they're going to arrive and the meeting is going to start when it starts, so there's something culturally there for sure.
1: Okay, that's awesome.
3: So in closing, what advice would you give to a business person who is planning to work, say, in Australia or the U.K., and specifically, what are some important do's and don'ts that you would suggest?
2: So my overall piece of advice would be, and I think this is generally true for most people who have the desire to work abroad, but really do your best when you're moving abroad to avoid comparing everything to what you're used to. Um, accept the fact that where you're going is different. They've done things differently in many cases for hundreds if not thousands of years since before you arrived. Um, it's important to them to have those, those cultural norms. Don't, don't go in trying to impose your worldview or your way of doing things on them. Go in with, with an appetite to learn and, and to develop a, a, a better sort of global mindset where you can flex your style to their style. That will be much appreciated. Um, specific do's and don'ts. Um, just in general, in the business and finance community, the UK tends to compensate much less than a lot of markets in, in, in the U.S., like San Francisco, New York, L.A. So I would say do your research about what what your compensation will be because it's very expensive to live in London, extremely expensive, um, but they don't pay accountants in London like they pay them in the U.S. So that was a challenge um, for a handful of us who went over to the U.K. at the same time. Um, thinking all other coastal do's and don'ts, <clears throat> don't badmouth the queen, don't talk about religion. Um, in, in in the UK and in Australia, there's generally a much, a much lower appetite for discussing what would otherwise be maybe sensitive topics like politics, um, religion, things like that. They just don't like to talk about it as much. Don't talk about salary. That's generally considered very inappropriate outside of the US and in many places in the US, but it does seem to happen more. Um, yeah, those would be my, my big pieces of of advice in terms of, of don'ts. In terms of do's, I mean, if you ever find yourself living in the U.K., take advantage of the, the travel that you have at your fingertips all throughout Europe. It, it's so easy to get around and so cheap compared to the U.S. that you should really try to make the most of your travel, um, but also balance that with making friends and, and building relationships where you're living in the U.K. It's a beautiful place. It's a beautiful history. Um, And if you're lucky enough to get there, I think everyone would
3: really enjoy it. So probably what I'd say. Great. Thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it.
2: Yeah, of course. Happy to to help. Thank you for having me.
0: Join us again next time when we hear from Simon Greathead, a Brit living in America. For more information about global business and culture, visit www.internationalhub.org and be sure to subscribe to Cultural Conversations with International Hub.